Chapter 57 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Inner Organization and Growth of the Church of Norway Among pagan nations, religion has always been regarded as an affair properly belonging within the domain of state administration. In pagan Norway, public worship was a state affair to such an extent that there was not even a distinct priesthood. The kings and chieftains performed the priestly functions in the temples, and as they were the leaders of the people in war and at the thing, they were also the custodians of the sanctuaries, and the wardens of the old faith. The feeling that the king was the highest authority in religious matters, as well as in affairs of government, grew out of the oldest traditions of the nation, and it was only intensified through the introduction of Christianity. The new faith was established by the kings themselves, who exercised full authority in all matters pertaining to the church and made laws governing its organization and future work. Christianity had become their special cause, in the opinion both of friends and opponents, a part of the new system which they sought to establish. When the aristocracy suffered defeat and the old political and religious opposition disappeared, the king became the head of the church as well as of the state, not only because of the power which he exercised and the organization which he had created, but also because the tradition and sentiment of the nation freely accorded him that position. Even after the Church of Norway was placed under the supervision of the Archbishop of Bremen, and later under the Archbishopric of Lund in Skana, which was created in 1104, the king continued to be its real head. King Harald Hordrada's answer to Archbishop Adalbert of Bremen, I know of no Archbishop in Norway except myself, King Harald, is characteristic, and illustrates well the situation. The archbishop, who was far away and wholly unknown to the people, could exercise but a nominal authority. All real power was in the hands of the king. This gave the Church of Norway a somewhat unique position. The character of its organization was determined by the laws issued by the king, and its complete dependence on royal authority stood in sharp contrast to the supremacy of the Roman Catholic Church in other countries of Europe. The bishops were at first missionaries without fixed dioceses, and they were chosen by the king and were called herd bishops, as they were regarded as belonging to the king's herd. They were his advisers in ecclesiastical affairs, but owed him the same obedience as other herdmen. The Heimskringlaw says of St. Olaf, The church laws he made according to the advice of Bishop Grimkel and other teachers, and he devoted all his energy to the eradication of paganism and old customs, which he considered contrary to the Christian spirit. The necessity of obtaining the consent of the people to the laws thus made constituted, however, an effective check on the royal authority. Even after permanent dioceses had been established, the choice of bishops was still controlled by the king. They were still dependent on him for their maintenance as well as for their office, and when they traveled through the country superintending the church work, they came as the king's representatives. The churches erected during the early Christian period were of three kinds. Each filke had one or more principal churches, filke's churches. These received grants of land from the king, and the people were also required to contribute to their support. In course of time, churches were also built in the herods, or local districts, and many of the leading men erected chapels, hugendes churches, on their own estates. The priests of the Filkis churches were chosen by the king and received an income, partly from the church lands, 
and partly in form of contributions and fees from their parishioners. The Herod priests were chosen by the people, and were wholly dependent on the parishioners for their salary. The priests in the Hergendes churches were appointed and paid by the owner of the church, or by the Philkis or Herod's priests whom they served as assistants. This very democratic church organization differed widely in character from the hierarchic system of the Church of Rome. The bishops exercised authority, each in his own diocese, but they were not leagued together in any higher unity. They were dependent on the king, as the priests were dependent on their parishioners, both for their office and their substance. The clergy were amenable to the state laws, like other citizens, as the church laws were only a part of the civil code. The church had no laws of its own, and exercised no separate jurisdiction. In social life, the priests and bishops were still bound closely to the rest of the people through intermarriage, as celibacy was not enforced in Norway till in the latter part of the 13th century. But in time, the influence of the Roman hierarchy, which dominated all intellectual and spiritual life of the age, made itself more strongly felt also in Norway. The religious enthusiasm aroused by the Crusaders inspired kings like Olaf Kyrre and Sigurd the Crusader with ardent devotion to the cause of the church, and they were easily persuaded to enlarge its privileges even at the expense of their own power. The spirit of the times, the zeal and ability of the popes, together with the conditions at home, gave the Church of Norway a hierarchic character, and made it an organization independent of the state, able to exert a controlling influence over state affairs. The religious fervor of the kings originated this new development. The introduction of the system of tithes in the reign of Sigurd the Crusader made the clergy independent economically, and the period of the civil wars hastened the growth of the power and independence of the church. The weak and worthless kings who occupied the throne in that period were as unfit as they were unable to exercise supreme control over religious affairs. In struggles with their rivals, they willingly bartered away powers and principles for temporary advantages. The royal power was weakened, and the government demoralized. In such a period of anarchy and commotion, the church would naturally assume control of its own affairs, not only because of opportunity, but as a matter of necessity. The chief step towards a hierarchic organization of the Church of Norway was the establishing of the Archdiocese of Nidaros in 1152 and the new regulations then made for the Norwegian church. Cardinal Niklaus Breakspear of England was sent by Pope Eugenius III as papal legate with instructions to establish archbishoprics in Norway and Sweden, and he also brought with him the pall for the new archbishoprics. The archdiocese of Nidaros should include the five bishoprics of Norway, and also the six bishoprics in the Norwegian colonies, Skullholt and Hallar in Iceland, Kirkwall, Old Norse Kirkjuvalger, in the Orkneys, Gardar in Greenland, Kirkeber, Old Norse Kirkeber, in the Faroe Islands, and the bishopric of the Hebrides, Sudriar, and Man, Sodor and Man. New regulations were also made for the election of bishops in the five bishoprics of Norway proper. A chapter, or college of priests, was organized in each diocese. The members of this chapter, Canoniki, should constitute the bishop's council. They were also to perform the duties of his office in case of vacancy, and should elect his successor without interference from secular authorities. The archbishop was chosen by the chapter of the diocese of Nidaros, but he was consecrated by the pope and received the pall from him. The colonial diocese had no chapters, and their bishops were chosen by the chapter of the diocese of Nidaros. 
the tax called Peter's Pence was introduced, and each grown person should pay a penning to the church. Regulations were also made for disposing of property by testament, which had not hitherto been customary, and it must be inferred that the church hoped to profit by this arrangement. A person should have the right to give away by testament one-tenth of his inherited property and up to one-fourth of property which he himself had acquired. A woman might grant by will one-tenth of her dowry and up to one-fourth of her one-third share of the property, which she held in joint ownership with her husband. Celibacy of the clergy was also established, but it was not yet enforced. The priests were to be appointed by the bishops, but it is not clear to what extent the bishops exercised this right. The Roman Church asserted everywhere its spiritual supremacy over the state, and claimed certain privileges and powers as its own indisputable right. The chief of these were the right of the Church to legislate in all ecclesiastical matters, the Church law consisting of the canonical code, supplemented by the decrees which the Pope and the Church councils might issue from time to time, should be independent of the civil law, and should govern all affairs pertaining to the Church and the clergy. Separate ecclesiastical courts were to be established, and the Church should exercise full jurisdiction in all cases involving religion, the Church, and the clergy. The Church was to enjoy freedom from any but voluntary contributions to the state. By the new regulations of 1152, these rights were established in theory, at least, and the bishops henceforth claimed them in the name of the Church. But neither the kings nor the people were at first willing to grant the clergy such privileges. The claims remained for a while only the abstract principles of the spiritual supremacy of the Church, and its independence of all secular authority. But the time came when the church arrayed itself against the state in an effort to enforce its claims, and we find the bishops themselves fanning the flames of civil strife. This new power, which had been nursed under the king's special care, allied itself, after 1152, with the reactionary aristocracy in opposition to the crown. The energies of the clergy were largely devoted to the perfecting of its outward organization and to the incessant combats waged for new privileges and increased influence. The priests were often poorly qualified for their calling, worldliness grew, and more emphasis was laid on the outer form than on the inner spirit of Christian life and faith. As Christianity had been introduced by royal decree, as the knowledge even of the fundamentals of the Christian faith was more than imperfect, and the bishops and priests were often more intensely interested in politics and other temporal affairs than in the religious instruction of the people, Christianity was generally regarded as a new law which the king had proclaimed. The new faith became a sort of witch's cauldron in which the remnants of paganism, superstitions, and fragments of Christian belief were hopelessly mixed. In too many cases it could scarcely be called Christianity. The hierarchic organization of the church probably increased at first its efficiency as a moral agent. It could now act with great authority and could display a power and splendor which made a strong impression on the popular mind. But its missionary spirit gradually gave way to love of wealth and power and the attention was gradually directed to the outward forms of the church service which could work no regeneration of spirit. The work of conversion was begun, but the Roman hierarchy showed itself unable to lead the people forward to full spiritual daylight. The religious and moral growth, so slow in Norway, was if possible even more behindhand in the colonies. Christianity was accepted as the state religion in Iceland in the year 1000, but the legislative act of the all-thing which abolished the old worship produced no perceptible change in the moral life or the religious views of the people. 
The Christian church in Iceland was too poorly organized to become even a fair substitute for the old temples which were torn down. The churches were all built by influential chieftains, who often took holy orders and served as priests in their own churches, when no priests could be had. In this way, they could combine the priestly functions with their political and social leadership as in pagan times. If they found this arrangement inconvenient, they took boys into their homes and instructed them sufficiently so that they could read the church service and made them priests in their churches. These boys had no social standing, but were classed with the servants of the household. It is quite evident that under such circumstances Christianity could be but a thin varnish over a completely pagan life. The loss of the old faith and the lack of instruction in the new produced not immediately, but in due course of time, a religious indifference and general moral laxity which comes so prominently into the foreground in the bloody Stirling period, 1160 to 1262, a complete counterpart to the period of civil wars in Norway. In speaking of this period, Professor J. E. Sars says, In the so-called Stirling period, the country was more and more torn by the wildest party strife, the final result of which was that the Icelandic people, exhausted, torn, and despairing, gave up their independence and threw themselves into the arms of the kingdom of Norway. The accounts of these feuds reveal a bloodthirstiness, hard-heartedness, and violent desire for wealth and power, which is not surpassed in pagan times, and furthermore a faithlessness and treachery, a lack of respect for law and justice, a licentiousness and a dissolution of domestic life, to which the saga period prior to 1030 furnishes no parallel. Conrad Maurer says of the Stirling period, the fearful disorders are ascribable in part to the political situation, but in part, and perhaps for the greater part, they are due to another circumstance, namely the change to the new faith, as paradoxical as this may sound. The more completely paganism as a thoroughly national religion had grown together with the whole life of the Norsemen, the more definitely and comprehensively it had embraced and shaped the people's moral and legal conceptions, the more grievous was the loss caused by abandoning it. On the other hand, the more outward the motives had been which had led the masses of the people to change their faith, the less the new faith, we must admit, was able to compensate for the loss. During the first decades after the introduction of Christianity, this misfortune would be less keenly felt, since on the one hand, paganism still continued for a time to dominate the minds of the people, while on the other hand, the glowing further and truly Christian conduct of the few who from a deep inner conviction professed the new faith, won for Christianity, as far as their influence went, a powerful influence also over external life. But after the generation which had been brought up under paganism had passed away, and also their nearest descendants, who through lack of priests had been reared to a large extent in the pagan spirit, after Christianity, on the other hand, had become a custom, represented not by zealous neophytes, but by priests who were poorly trained, and who generally were so occupied with the outward forms of the new religion that they could pay but little attention to its inner contents, while their great political importance and their unfortunate social position turned their thoughts from their religious calling, the gap produced in the people's minds by the change of faith, outwardly accomplished but inwardly far from completed, showed itself in all its fearful significance. It is easily understood that the unrest caused by this sudden rupture of all existing conditions brought to the surface the worst elements of the people and the most objectionable traits of their natural character. It would be erroneous, however, to think that the blight thrown upon Christianity by these conditions was altogether general. Long before the introduction of the Christian faith, 
many of the most earnest and intelligent had ceased to believe in the old gods and were searching for new light. To many of them, Christianity must have come as glad tidings, and though their Christian knowledge was very imperfect, it must have chastened their spirit, and inspired them with new love for the goodness which is heaven-born. The new moral standards established by the Christian teaching could not long remain a secret to those who had dreamed of virtues which paganism did not know, and the force of their example and their words of admonition and counsel would not be lost on those who suffered from all the evils of a dark and lawless age. Through the tumult of the civil wars we hear nothing of these, but we are nevertheless sure that they were found, yes, that they were numerous, and that they were gradually bringing about a great change in the social, religious, and moral life of the nation. The effect of this new spiritual and moral leaven is shown among other things by the disappearance of slavery. It happened even in pagan times that a man would grant a slave his liberty on certain conditions, especially if the slave had done him some great service, or the slave might buy his freedom. But new ones were constantly bought in the numerous slave markets. But with the advent of Christianity the slave markets were gradually closed. In the old laws, usually called the laws of St. Olaf, it was enacted that at the meeting of every log thing a slave should be given his freedom, to the honor of God, and the remuneration given the owner should be paid by the whole logdoma. In Olav Kyrr's time, this law was so amended that each filkis thing should liberate a slave every year. This had a great influence on public opinion, and in the 12th century, before the civil wars were ended, slavery had ceased to exist in Norway. Although religious life made slow progress during the period of storm and stress caused to some degree by the change of faith, a new cultural life, born in part of the new spirit, was growing, budding, and giving promise of the great intellectual awakening, the luxuriant unfolding of literature, art, and national greatness in the period that followed. An age of almost unparalleled productivity which in a hundred years gave Norway and Iceland the great Old Norse literature, which saw great cathedrals erected, science and learning cultivated, and Norway, politically strong and economically prosperous, highly honored among the states of Europe. Such conditions could not be produced suddenly, as if by accident, but followed as a result of a development which, though obscured and retarded, was not interrupted by the tumultuous feuds of the civil wars, and which gives even that period a tinge of hopefulness and a touch of wayward charm. The period which was marred by so much domestic turmoil showed marked signs of an awakening of literary activity. The books were usually written in Latin, which was the literary language elsewhere in Europe. The Mass, which was the most important part of the church service, was also conducted in that language, but the custom of preaching to the people in their own tongue had been introduced from England by the first missionaries in the time of Olaf Tryggvason and Olaf the Saint, and homilies were written in Old Norse to be read in the churches. The legends about the Norwegian saints were also embodied in writing. The oldest St. Olaf legend was written in Latin about 1140. It seems to have been composed by a priest in Trondheim to be read to pilgrims and visitors on St. Olaf's day, and it was soon followed by a whole literature of similar character. Einar Skulason's poem, Geisli, a draupa written about St. Olaf, which the poet recited in the Christ Church in Trondheim in 1153, was also based on this legend. The most important literary work of the period was the embodiment in writing of the old laws of Norway in the great codes, the Frosta Thingslov, Gula Thingslov, Eidsiva Thingslov, and Borger Thingslov. These codes, together with the Bjarkiarethr, or municipal laws, 
the Hirskral, and other old laws were all written in the Old Norse language. The time when they were written can be determined only approximately from internal evidence from the codes themselves, as the sources contain no direct statement with regard to it. The old writers regarded it as certain that the old laws were first written by St. Olaf himself. Theodricus Monachus says of Olaf, Leges patria lingua conscribi fecit, and the Legenda de Sto Olavo says, Leges divinus et humanus scripsit et promulgavit. Saxo Grammaticus holds the same opinion, but Conrad Maurer has shown that this opinion has nothing to support it except St. Olaf's great reputation as lawgiver, while the wording of the codes themselves proves that they could not have been written by him or under his direction. Ebbe Hertzberg finds that the church laws, Christenret, which form a supplement to all these codes, were written before the system of tithes was introduced by Sigurd the Crusader, 1111-1120. And as the other laws must have been written as soon as possible after the task was once begun, the whole work was probably finished in Olaf Kyrre's reign, prior to 1111. End of chapter 57